0: Fill to capacity. Quirky conversations that explore the inside out of being human and navigates the emotional terrain of a fast-changing world. Inspiring, irreverent, and informative. Stay tuned. So I woke up this morning and... And this word was just like burning in my head. Sometimes there's just like something that just kind of gets lodged that I can't shake, and I don't have a clue where it's going to go. The word is context. It just seems like one of those ubiquitous, everyday, everyone uses that word a million times. So I had to look up the word context the circumstances that form the setting of an event, statement, or idea. in which it can be fully understood. And it seemed to me that context during COVID, because COVID has changed context completely, utterly, totally. What are your thoughts about that?
1: I think this idea of context, it was really great to get that refresher of a definition because it's kind of a word that I think we lose sight of the meaning of it, you know, and what it really stands for. I think the way I've been experiencing COVID and the situational context, right, with everything, the lockdown, the restrictions, the lack of connection with other people in in an easy manner. I think the context, something has changed and what has changed, I didn't realize how much had changed, and I also didn't realize how much I was taking for granted what used to be. And it's taken many months, allowing me to take some fresh eyes as to what I held dear earlier that I probably wouldn't give a second thought about (laughs) and what I hold dear now in this new situation and how to accept it and enjoy it even if that's even a thing to say in this time. (laughs) I think my interactions have been very limited to just my family. So particularly my kids and my wife Divya. And you'd imagine that kind of know everything that's happening within the household, within the family, and you'd have all the context that you need. But the mind is such a mysterious like vehicle or machine that frequently I'm talking to my kids and I'm like, I kind of know what's going on. And then I realize, oh, my goodness, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea what's in their head. I have no idea what they're feeling. I don't know how they're thinking at this moment. And I'm just assuming certain things and I end up not meeting them where they are or where I need to go. And it's very humbling to know that with people you want to be close with, you still seem a little bit far away just because there's this context that you're not able to wrap your head around and not opening yourself up to that. At least that's been my experience. I don't know. That's what emerges for me, Pat.
0: (laughs) I like that everybody has their own little universe now in COVID. And it's their apartment, their house, their pets, whatever their life situation may be. We all now are a constellation of multiple little universes. (laughs) And this COVID thing has abruptly stopped our river of assumptions. I think of my daily routine before COVID. I live seven minutes from downtown Minneapolis and 10 minutes from St. Paul. We're right in between. So when I need to go to the art supply store, the hardware store, you know, I'm in the city. You run and get your supplies or someone calls, hey, you want to meet for coffee today? I need to blah, blah. All these assumptions that the wet paint store, that's the name of it's called, wet paint will always be there. The coffee shop is open. I've got gas in the car or I'll walk. My universe is based on assumptions, routine, repetition, little things, big things. All of a sudden that stops. It just stops. And now I'm in the universe called my house with my partner, four ill-behaved kitties. And here we are, and watching the news and trying to connect and trying to grasp what has happened. So when you talk about the assumptions that you thought you knew about your family, your family life, I appreciate just the the life quality of that, Sanish. That all of a sudden, like, oh my God, this is what the kids do? Or I thought I knew, or for me, it's, God, I got to clean that litter box, those litter boxes more. Man, I'm here all the time. I mean, we're on top of it, but got to do this or got to do that. And what about groceries? How do we do? You know, all these little things in the context of everydayness is remarkable. And so when I think about context, and you're right, it does allow us to see things with new eyes. I I really appreciate you saying that, Sanish. that... Here we have to see things with totally new eyes. But the other side of it is that we now have to be shapeshifters. COVID has forced us to be shapeshifters, that we have to change form and identity constantly within our home, within the digital commons that we go to called social media. We are constantly shapeshifting. None of us saw that coming, you know. Would you agree with that assessment that we that we're shape shifting constantly?
1: I think there's a great degree of that happening or needs to happen. I don't know if I'm sort of if this is a good example, but one thing that I experienced very recently in how I needed to either change my behavior or I guess shape shift has been you know an interaction with my my older son. He's seven years old, and before COVID one of our, I guess, beloved activities to do together was to do math puzzle problems. It was just like maybe a couple hours a week split into like 15 or 20 minute chunks. And, you know, we would just like kind of discuss like, hey, what would happen if we did this? Or, you know, if you had like five beads in a row and you had to color two of them, how many ways could you color two of them? You know, and just interesting questions and it would be discussions and we would kind of explore the problem. And ideally the answer would not be as important as the thinking process that went behind it. And that's sort of how we modeled it. And it was our time, father and son kind of hanging out and enjoying each other's company. The time was limited and it was limited because, you know, there were, it was, he had school, I had work and the times we overlapped at home were probably on a weekday, were probably like a good three to four hours before they went to bed. And maybe we'd squeeze in occasionally like 10 or 15 minutes of this kind of a discussion. With COVID, <laughs> I'm at home, <laughs> he's at home. We constantly see each other. Every every day. And we have opportunities to hang out more than we did. And we would engage in something that came very naturally to us, which was like these math puzzle problems. And we'd talk about it. One day I was sitting with my son and he said, Hey, Papa, do you mind if I just do these problems on my own? And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess so. Can you tell me why? And he said, you know, when you're sitting next to me, I get stressed out and I'm not focused enough. And I was like, my whole world collapsed there. I was like, Oh my goodness, this is like, I thought this was like a very fun activity for him. I thought like I was being a great dad. You know, we were building some skills, and really sat thinking about that for a long time. And I was like, "Oh my goodness, what you know? What has happened? What has happened is that in this lockdown phase." I realized my earlier motivation for, you know, doing these math puzzle activities. I, I love math. I think math is very essential for everything, whether it's science or architecture or medicine or art. And, and so I just wanted to make it fun for him to feel like he can engage in math without feeling pressured or thinking it's a boring subject or something like that. And so we will come up with these puzzles. And I think what I realized that hidden deep down in me was this desperation for him to be very, very good at it so that he could be set for the rest of his life, whatever he chooses to do, having such a foundation. And I think that inner drive was somehow altering my behavior in a way that I think I made it a little bit stressful for him or not as enjoyable. And we kind of moved away from the initial principles. So I sat thinking about that. You know, in times like this, there's always like this Somehow you read something and there's like a passage that kind of like sticks with you and you're like, oh my God, this explains my entire universe in this small passage. And I was lucky enough to find it. I'm going to read this. I think it's by someone named Ed Sprunger. And it talks about resistance. And he writes, think of resistance as a gift. Consider that resistance might be the child's way of helping you. Resistance may be the child's way of cooperating by showing the adult what doesn't work. In this sense, it may be a gift. It may be irritating, but it is a gift nevertheless. And I was like, oh my goodness, he's like really reaching out to me and telling me and being brave to tell me that my presence around him is actually hindering his enjoyment of something. And I think that was a moment for me to, I guess, shape shift. Mm-hmm. And normally I would go into like, but why? Explain to me, but why? You know what? You know what? Yeah, go for it. Just hang out, do your thing. I'll be pottering about here and there. If you need my help, let me know. That's what he does now. And he, I make up these problems. He, he does them by himself. Uh, occasionally, we'll have like these long conversations, like old friends talking about a problem that he tried to solve on his own and the pride he has, even if the answer was completely wrong, even if the steps were completely wrong, but just the fact that he's doing his own effort. And I realize, like you know, ultimately, that's kind of the point of education, right? To give people the courage to try things and not be afraid of mistakes because, you you know, ultimately our whole lives is a bunch of mistakes. It's like only a couple of successes that define us, but really it's a whole bunch of mistakes. And the fact that we didn't stop or whether by persistence or by luck, we managed to live through the day to to have that one success, which kind of defines a lot of us. And so I, I just felt like the, the kind of shape-shifting I need to do and carry forward is... To allow more space uh, and to listen when people say, hey, like presence is actually causing a hindrance. And that wouldn't have been possible unless, and I guess, if we weren't like in this lockdown state where we're constantly like moving around each other and hanging out with each other and, and all of that. And I think that was something I, I took for granted, like, oh, it's family. You know, they're always going to love me around, love me. You know, I'm, I'm going to be around all the time. How can they not like my presence? And I think that was, that, that was really interesting.
0: Boy, that really brings it home, doesn't it? <laughs> Another aspect of this, you were talking about it on an interpersonal, a wonderful interpersonal level of how we take our egos out of the way when things happen. And well, that's a tough one, not to be crushed that he would say, I want to do it myself. But the fact of the matter is, as it played out, now you talk like two old friends. Could you have ever envision that?
1: Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard. Like I I never thought about this. Uh, I was absolutely crushed when he said that. And, you know, but again, I think this passage really helped me center myself and, you know, he needs this. He's asking me for it. Let's give it to him, and then yeah, and I think at the end of the day when he would do these problems, yeah, I mean we would talk as as peers, as two explorers, each sharing notes of how we thought about a particular problem and our successes and failures and the different steps we did, and it was just like it was, uh, you know, there've been conversations where there've been very few judgments. Like he he's not afraid of my judgment when I'm when normally I would say, oh, why did you do that? I, I don't say those kinds of things. I guess I always aspired to having this kind of a relationship with kids. And of course, a few conversations doesn't necessarily change the nature of the relationship, but it's a really good shift in our relationship. And I think it's it's up to both me and him and me more as the adult to keep space for such conversations as we talk as two old buddies, you know, it's, it's, it's really fun. But yeah, I, I think I wouldn't have imagined that it would happen so soon or in this manner. I've always aspired to it, you know, and like projecting, like, you know, maybe like, okay, when this guy is like 12 or 15, you know, we'll be like buddies, maybe we'll get some drinks when we're 18 and we'll chat like old buddies and things like that. And I just don't know what all the stuff that I was making up in my head. To for it to happen like this has been really a blessing.
0: <laughs> if we shift gears from the micro to the macro, in a way, when I think of COVID, I think of it as a global forced stop. When uh, you install something on your computer or you're having problems, you have to do a restart, reboot. And all of a sudden, the world found itself in a global reboot. Everybody had to stop, stay home, limit who they saw, what we could do. And it wasn't just a month or two. It's, all, it's a year now, it was almost a, a moment for us to collect ourselves or cause some kind of reflection possibility that, you know, when you can't go anywhere and be with your friends and you do stuff around the house, you, sometimes you got to really be with yourself. So in a way, it's like we had to learn how to be with ourselves in this context of COVID. And then all of a sudden around us, other things began to happen. George Floyd, the elections, this kind of frenetic swirling around us of all these events that picked up globally. And somehow I began to wonder that this time with George Floyd, this moment, this happened, and this time the world heard it. We saw it. But somehow this one connected in a way that People in Paris, uh, Brussels, all over the world, people started to march or react, make commentary. So we know about our inner worlds and our personal universe, you know, that we live day to day, but something spilled out to the bigger picture.
1: I do remember that time. I mean, it was like, I don't know, March, April, May of, of last year. And it was all of these things coming together, right? So there was police brutality and racism, there was a political climate, there was the fear of foreign things that was being instilled. And I think at that time I was working and and there was an incredibly, incredibly passionate debate. Within place where I was working, whether we should drop the political incumbent who happened to be a customer of our company, if should just drop their uh, business because of what they stood for, mm-hmm. and all of that, and it was just this this high energy conversation, and a lot of it spurred a lot of people to action in in many ways, right? So uh, it, through through marches, to changes in practices, through donations through spreading of different inspiring messages or inspiring people to write their commentary. And it is incredible, right? Like I think these kinds of things, as horrible as they are, you know, they've happened before and reactions have been different. Something about this time, I can't put my finger on it. The fact that I don't know what it is. If if people felt more space or more focus due to the situation, I think they were able to absorb it in a way that spurred different actions than at least different sustained actions. Because I think in the past, too, you know, a lot of events such as these have spurred action. But I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the, you know, you, you have to go back and go back to your routine. So maybe you can sustain it only for, you know, a little bit of time. But maybe there was something different about it this time where it was really important events, but also people felt that they had time and space to act longer and to be more sustained in their approach. The inc- I, I do remember, like, you know, I may not remember the the actual details, but I remember the feeling that it was such an incredibly stressful time, incredibly depressing, and at least everyone I was talking to and my own feelings were, like, very close to just we just feeling this fun. Like, well, is there anything we can do? And I, I think all of that, we, we had a different way to deal with it given the different situation we were in. Yeah. I don't know, what was your experience of of the time then?
0: Well, I'm in Minnesota. Yeah. And like the world watching, it was extremely stressful watching the news, but also living here, people were very frightened. And about a block and a half away, uh, windows were smashed. And so it was real. And neighbors were scared. There were rumors saying that people were planting incendiaries in alleys. We have alleys in, in St. Paul and Minneapolis. We left the lights on. Let's just light up the neighborhood. But the bigger thing was that it, it happened not even 10 miles from here. It was real. And the city rioting and the outrage that was going on and all of it, it was so real. And But this time, people... Felt the outrage so personally. And maybe because we had been living for months with worry about COVID, people wearing masks, people not wearing masks, people who have ailments and compromised immune systems, loved ones, elderly. So all of a sudden we're, we're worrying about our loved ones. Maybe that made us more malleable to how fragile and how threatening this situation is being Black while being in America. Covid had a way of just opening so many areas for all of us. So many feelings, fears, and joys. Being close to our loved ones, if we could be, and trying to connect. It was about learning how to connect. You know, how do we connect digitally? If you can't see your grandchildren, and you're used to seeing them once a week, how do we connect with that? How do we replace those those hugs that you know? How do we do that? Finding ways that. The lack of physical proximity created uh, emotional space digitally. We had to go to a digital emotional space so we could make sure that that love was unstoppable. And that, to me, was part of COVID, too. People finding ways of making sure love was unstoppable. We had to get really creative. That was my take on it. And in the context, again, of all that, the politicizing and the hate speech, if I could, I would like just to read a little piece that I wrote in 2016. And I think it fits this. It was after the 2016 election, about six months after it. Last night, I had a nanosecond of clarity about this moment of madness I saw a powerful circle water vortex swirling down, creating a void. And in that void poured unstoppable new water. And it made sense. All of the evil and awful things happening are not the focus. Those things are finite. Rather, it is the space that evil creates That allows goodness to reconfigure the void. Mm. As we live in this moment of madness, the question is, how do we reconfigure the void? That seems to be a question, that a necessary and urgent question.
1: One thing, first of all, thank you so much for sharing the piece. It is incredible. And it, it connects so well with something you said earlier in the conversation, which is that, I don't exactly remember how you said it, but it was just like the concern for our loved ones made us more malleable. And I I love the way you said that because that kind of connects to this shape-shifting, right? We've been talking about how do we shift to this new reality and to contribute, you know, In, in new ways, given like the older ways of operating are not available to us. There's something very powerful in what you're saying where I think recognize, and this is where it comes back to context as well, right? So like if we can wrap our heads around the context and it's like, can we recognize what these spaces are, what these voids are? And if we can, what can we do to fill them? I mean, and then what makes it easier or more natural for us to fill it with love? I think those are like the interesting things we can think about, the interesting discussions we can have at this time. Because yeah, things are moving around and I think we can make certain choices of how we want to adapt by filling some of the spaces that are being created.
0: I like how you say that too, that our task becomes identifying those voids. In those voids too, Sanesh, it comes down to one thing, choice. Do I choose to be a light in this dark? Do I choose to be seduced by the anger and hate, which is very seductive? Do I choose to somehow make a difference? And I'm not talking grandiose. Even in our own headspace, to choose not to be the dark and add fuel and energy to it. So right now, choice seems to be very, very, very important in terms of identifying void. I choose to, to have my eyes open. I choose to see what's going on. So we identify voids, we make choices, of how we choose to be in this new reality? And can we shape shift towards goodness? With all that we've seen, with all that's happened, it's like we can always make that choice. One day I went outside and I was looking at the sky and I was was kind of swearing at the sky, okay? And I was looking at it saying, damn you, you have witnessed everything. You have seen us at our best. At our most vicious and cruel, you've witnessed everything. You silent witness. You're always there. And I thought, yeah, you're always there. You are always there. And then I felt kind of this tenderness towards the sky <laughs> that it's been with us this whole time. So how we choose our frame of reference is really critical. And it's very Tenderly human.
1: Yeah. Have you shifted your frame of reference in this time in any way? Just curious.
0: That question, uh, Pavi says there's a question from a listener that feeds right into this, Sanish. May I read it? Sure. Uh, what is an example of a choice that you've each made in this COVID era?
1: It's an incredibly difficult time we're living in. There are people working their butts off in an unforgiving circumstances to continue to make things work for the rest of the society. And it's a really tough position to be in. Like, you know, uh, whatever decision one may make, whatever course of action one may decide to take, there will be an army of critics on um, yep. one side waiting for it to fail or to say, you know, like, this is not the right thing. And it be- kind of becomes really hard to even take action. And I think for me... One choice, it's not like I'm making it, I'm trying to make, is to assume the best, assume the best intention from other people, respect the struggles that they have, regardless of whether I agree with it or not, but to respect that struggle. And I think try to build some kinship in that manner, whether it is specifically or just generally, and, and use whatever comes out of that in terms of the feelings to kind of, I guess in some ways, fill the voids that we've been kind of talking about, you know, like, Mm -hmm. Fill it with a sense of connection. I mean, I I just, I don't know what this, like it's hard for me to think about a more, a a pure or greater form of connection than to say, look, I may disagree with you, but I respect what you're trying to do. And I respect the the situation you're in. And thank you for all your efforts in fighting that, fighting the good fight, uh, even if we may have done it differently. And I think just that level of connection, it can be incredibly powerful in bringing people together.
0: Examples of choice that I've made go from little tiny things to things that I think that I can do. Little things like after the first month of COVID, I put up signs in the neighborhood and on my door and I'm saying thank you to all of you who are delivering and doing things to keep the country running. You really appreciated. I'm visual. I'm an artist. I live in the land of visual. I got to see things. The other thing I did was started to contact people I hadn't talked to in a long time. Mm-hmm. And and I started reaching out. How are you doing? What's happening? How's your family? I made a list. I just start to do that from time to time. These are little things. But I just felt this hunger to want to connect. People were so... I mean, I hadn't talked to some of these people in a year, but it didn't matter. See, COVID is not chronological time. It is emotional time. Chronology has nothing to do with it. So it was like I had to reach out emotionally to connect. One other thing I did, I made a weekly pandemic graphic drawing that encapsulated the spirit of the week with an image. I really thought this was not going to be that long like all of us, but I did it to help me process what was this week about? What am I feeling? And in listening to people, I would do this little graphic. So that was my way as an artist to handle it. And the other thing, my social media presence, I frame in positive terms, very mindful. Do I want to throw that? Oh my God, what if, what am I going to, oh my God, this is a cat, you know, cataclysmic. Event. I don't want to be that one. I want, I, you know, and I'm not talking about being Pollyanna, saying, oh, isn't everything. No, no, no. I'm just choosing not to throw gas on the fire. We're all just hanging on here some some days by a thread. And so all these little micro things that we, within the scope of our own personality or who we are, I think that's our treasure trove of where we dig into to respond. And it is about choice.
1: Yeah, something very powerful in what you said about the little things. The little things are in our control and they're manageable. And my guess is that they probably have a way of like compounding over time. And so the benefits may be more than we expect them to be Mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. The little things, you know, getting in touch with people who we haven't spoken to in a while, you know, buying some groceries for the neighbors, anytime Mm -hmm. we're putting in an order or going to the grocery store, simple things like people leaving snacks out for like delivery folks, you know, it's just... It's these are just like amazing and and they're so simple and there's no reason they need to stop even after we get out of this phase which I hope we will.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I had kind of a aha moment. You know how we do a lot of our life online, or if you have to call to get like a service or things done, or you know I had to call my bank and 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 talk to folks, uh, talk to someone about something, and uh, and at, after I'm done and I thank them, I say. Now stay well, okay? Mm. And there's this, always this pause. And the voice changes on the other side. And you hear, thank you, you too. You too. You stay well too. And every time, it's just like, just in that split second, I know all is right in the universe. Two strangers connected. hmm I agree with you, Sanish. I hope as this ends that we don't forget these little things, these little words of, of connection. They're so small, little acts of kindness. Thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. All we ever want in this life is to be appreciated and heard. And in this forced physical separation, we are finding ways of hearing each other and connecting with each other in ways that I didn't even know I needed to do.
1: It is these, I don't know how to say them, these like micro sparks or micro moments of relief that we can send out into the universe that can really transform someone's day. And I've been thinking about this as well. like, And I don't have a good answer. And also curious sort of how you're thinking about this is, um, you know, like if if the situation that we are in, not that I want it to last any longer than it should, but just as a thought experiment, you know, if we were in like this COVID situation for a month or two, to me, knowing myself, personally speaking, I probably would have made some habit changes, but then would have just reverted back to old habits right away. It's, been, it's actually taken a whole year for me to, I'm only now feeling like I've kind of got some handle on how to live in this time after a year. And uh, I think all that time was important to, because I guess behavioral change is so hard. Like we're, we're trying to change, I guess like the base version of ourselves, and we've been kind of moving on autopilot for so long. It's just like, how, how do you even change this? And it just takes such so much work and effort. And I think time has been so important. And I think I can only hope that people find, in their own ways, the time they need to build upon any of these shape shifting positive habits that they may have developed. Um, and everyone's going to need a different amount of time and, and mm-hmm. I hope they get what they need. You know, and I, I think I'm still kind of trying to discover for myself, like, what do I need? And it's not super clear, but there's some direction somewhere, you know. <laughs> I, I'm curious what you're thinking about this.
0: In essence, I think it's about surrender. Mm. When do we yield to the moment? When do we stop fighting and maybe adapting to this new environment that we're in? A lot of people will say, oh, I can't wait till things get back to normal. Oh, yeah. When things post-COVID, things get back to normal. I'm not sure. I, I can't even imagine what normal's going to look like. I really can't. But it is about surrender. Surrender, that means acceptance that this is going on. And then trying to figure out how can I adapt to this? How do I be in this world? This, this COVID world. How, how to be. In the 50s, there was a song. K sera, sera, by Doris Day. The words, K sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see, que sera, sera. Then, what, 20 years later, let it be, by the Beatles. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom let it be and in that trajectory of Sarah, to let it be is almost like a playbook for me it's not about a fatalism that fate will carry me but learning to find out when to let it be so i think that's my my uh, response to it
1: yeah you know i think i've always found it difficult to understand the trade off or the balance between the beauty of surrender and yielding to the moment mm-hmm. and the urge to act with passion. Yes. Because that is needed to change as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think identifying moments when it's important to just let it be versus identifying moments where it's important to act, you know, as we've seen people acting all over the world in the last year, that is something that. At least I've personally found very kind of difficult to to identify. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I think you're really hitting on something. My constant frame of reference is always defiance. (laughs) Right. I can't help it. Okay. That's just the way I'm made. And I've lived long enough that I began to suspect that in surrender, there is defiance Mm -hmm. and to accept one's limitations as a means to know our strength. When I... I know my weaknesses, that's just a parameter to allow my defiance. Where can I speak? Even though I get afraid of things and I, I don't want to have controversy, you know, I'm, oh, I hate that kind of thing, but there I am. My mouth starts to open and they, oh dear God, you're going to do it again. And I think that surrender doesn't mean giving up. I don't mean it in that sense. Throwing up your hand saying, oh no, this is more than I, I can handle. I'm not saying it that way. I'm saying it it is the most tender form of defiance to know when to yield to a moment and when to put your feet on the ground, stand erect and say, no, this is my line in the sand. This is my line, but I don't, I can't draw that line in the sand unless I know my capacity to surrender, what it is I need to yield to. That's more important than myself. That's bigger than myself. That's really tough. Or, to run, to hide, which I can do mentally in a nanosecond. I'll tell you that. I heard someone say once that the word courage is old French. Cour means heart, of the heart. Courage is of the heart. And I thought, oh, I like that. It's not this bravado, brass, bronze statue that's a thousand feet high of of some person on a horse. That's not courage. Courage is when... We step into our everydayness and actually hear our son say, Dad, can I do this by myself? That's a magnificent courage. That is the the, the holiness of everyday life. That's the courage I'm talking about. So yeah, that's how I see it. The courage of everyday life. Now more than ever, there's so many courageous people just making breakfast in the morning, going to work, taking care of their families. Trying to do online teaching. I mean, I just wish there was a cosmic scorekeeper that for all the thousands and billions of people doing their everyday acts of courage that we could see in the universe. You know how they like you draw a line after five, you cross it. And I would just like to see, I suspect that what we're looking at in the sky at night aren't stars, they are. Evidence and markers of, oh, those courageous acts that happened earlier in the day. Beautiful. <laughs> well, have we put context in context, Sanish?
1: <laughs> I mean, this, is, this has been incredible. I think we, yeah, I mean, we started off talking about context, but we realized it's so connected to understanding what's happening within and outside and identifying voids and making choices what to fill in those voids. And a lot of those choices are these deep moments where you have to sometimes figure out, is this a good time to surrender with recognition of tenderness or is this a time to act? And it's a very rich lab in which we're experimenting how to be our best selves. And I think embracing that is something I'm taking away from our conversation.
0: And I'm taking away the delight of your interaction with your family the contextual basis for your your search, like you want to be the dad that really understands and you want to be there and teach life lessons. And this little being says, okay, dad, that's great, but I want to do it by myself. What a delight in your response. I mean, I can carry that with me for the rest of the day, Sonish. I really can. Thank you so much, Pat.